0: What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Critical Mass Podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Center for Social Impact at UBU. I'm Hannah, and I'm this year's host. Now, in physics, the term critical mass refers to the minimum amount of material needed to spark a chemical reaction. And in social impact language, we use the term critical mass to talk about the minimum number of people we need in order to create social change, or even the initial protest or event that sparks a social movement. Now, this year, the pod's been spotlighting student activists, organizers, and advocates, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking to y'all about housing. And that means student housing instability, unsheltered student stories, and all the dope shit student organizers, Have done in response to those issues. So, what is housing instability? Housing instability refers to a bunch of issues people might experience that are related to getting and keeping stable, consistent, affordable, and safe shelter. Basically, getting and keeping a home. Whether that's a rented apartment or an owned house. And that can look like having trouble paying rent, experiencing a lot of overcrowding in your living space, moving around a ton, or spending more than you should need to on housing related expenses alone. Now, households are considered to be cost burdened if they spend more than 30% of their monthly income on housing, and severely cost burdened if they spend more than 50% of their monthly income on housing. Now, in Until I started up the research for this episode, I thought this issue didn't really affect me because I have a place to sleep every night. But if you or anyone you know is spending more than 30% of your monthly income on rent and associated costs, then the housing crisis affects you. Now, we do this at the beginning of every episode, but before we get to the big stuff, I want to do a bit of term setting. That basically means we're going to be talking about the words that I will and won't be using throughout this episode. Now, when discussing housing issues, people tend to use the word homeless, and generally the pod prefers the terms unsheltered or unhoused. Now, the reason for that preference is partially just because there are some pretty nasty cultural images, ideas, and stereotypes associated with the word homeless that we want to get away from, but mostly it's because the linguistic structure of the word homeless frames the situation as a personal failure of the individual rather than an indicator of a broader structural issue because it puts the burden and blame of housing instability on the people suffering rather than the systems that create that housing instability. So we're going to use the term unhoused whenever we can, which emphasizes the actual conditions of not having a house, which could happen to anyone as a result of predatory housing practices and laws, unfair conditions, job insecurity, etc. Okay, now, to tell y'all the story of how I came to interview this month's guests, I gotta tell y'all another story about a dope housing protest that happened at UC Santa Cruz back in May of 2022. Now, one big thing to know about the city of Santa Cruz is that it's a pretty expensive place to live. Now, for students who get accepted to the school but then cannot attend because of unaffordable housing prices, that's a problem. Now, UC Santa Cruz is a school that has enough dormitory housing to accommodate less than half of its total number of enrolled students. So in that case, it's really easy to see why a bunch of hopeful freshmen who applied for on-campus housing and then get waitlisted and have nowhere else to to go, I'd be pretty upset. So you got a school making big promises to students that it physically cannot deliver on, a bunch of students without a place to sleep, and a few angry and smart student organizers, and from all that is born a dope-ass demonstration. Now in a protest organized by the Santa Cruz Student Housing Coalition and a number of other student groups, hundreds of students marched from one end of campus to another and ended their demonstration in front of the administration building. Now students gave passionate speeches and rallied for change, but after all this, and this is my favorite part, students taped up paper copies of their demands on the glass wall of the administration building march Luther style, right in front of the office of USSC's Chancellor Cynthia LaRive. Now, as soon as I heard about this, I knew we had to get the organizers of that demonstration on the pod. So I reached out and was able to organize a conversation between Zenin, the president of the Housing Coalition, Ray, the vice president, and Michelle, the director of outreach. And that's what y'all are about to hear right now.
1: Coming up to UC Santa Cruz, I mean, to really drive the point home, nine percent of our students are homeless. Like literally nine percent of our students which is just a ridiculous number and so mm. coming up to santa cruz started talking to a lot of different people uh started talking to a lot of people about their experiences with, with friends who were either commuting from uh two hours away because they couldn't sign a lease and they're having to commute from the bay area to uc santa cruz just for a discussion section once on a tuesday mm. you know talking to people that were living outside the vehicles like literally on the streets parked on the side of the road because they weren't able to find a lease, they weren't able to afford a home. Talking to people that knew people that had dropped out of the university mm. because they weren't able to find housing. Because especially when we all came, because we're all second years, it was the first time that the university had returned to in-person. Mm. And so it was really when we came back post-pandemic that the magnitude of the crisis just exploded. I mean, the median home price in the Santa Cruz pre-pandemic, what was $800,000? post-pandemic it was 1.6 million dollars yeah. is the median price for us oh shit um, and it's even higher now that mm-hmm. was back in 2021 i wouldn't put it past to be of at least 1.8 million dollars right now oh, shit. and so getting started with that um really there was a real need for students to be represented within constituents like within the government especially locally because essentially we were facing uh crisis yet there was nobody speaking for our voices
0: there's a lot of causes worth organizing for um and I'm curious like specifically for for well actually I guess for all of you um what made you choose housing specifically and I see that you guys like on your Instagram and on your website you're talking about like equity and sustainability and these it's like it's not just about like housing like putting people in homes but it's about the way that you do it um so I think like how do you guys kind of combine all the issues that you care about into like the pursuit of, of of housing justice and equity
2: I think I think a lot of it comes from our mission statement and what we value as an organization and so you know being sustainable and equitable at the same time mm. and so a lot of us wanted to make sure that you know when we talk about housing we're talking about affordability we're mm. talking about which students get to get the opportunity to go to higher education and a lot of the time you know it comes to gatekeeping how many more students can we enroll at a UC, at Cal State, community college level, when it's, you know, impossible to afford to live in these universities? Nice. So that's kind of where I came into this. It was more like not enough students of color can afford to go to these schools. And that's because it's unaffordable to live in them. And so mm. when we look at, you know, how we te- can tackle the housing crisis, we had to look at it from a point of view where it's not just about, you know, us as undergrads, but you know, the student population as a whole, like all of us. And so I guess that's how we wanted to do it, was doing it in a way that's sustainable and equitable at the same time.
1: I mean, housing is one of those issues that's so interconnected with so many other issues. I mean, Ray is talking about access to opportunity, um, the fact that by making it impossible to live here, we're effectively gatekeeping higher education. Um, and it extends not only just to that, but beyond that, to issues of environmental racism, where you have the only areas that are allowed to have apartments in the city of Santa Cruz is in the floodplain, right? <laughs> is in the very area that is going to be affected by climate change. You know, right. you also have where, uh, you know, on the west side of Santa Cruz, which has the best jobs, the best schools, the, right next to the university, it's all a bunch of mansions because mm. that's how the system's set up here and it's really inequitable where students are having to commute in from other cities that are 45 minutes to an hour away which is then causing gentrification displacement in those communities because students can't afford to live here and so it's a cycle of never-ending kind of not goodness <laughs> which is why we're coming in here and trying to come up with a new fresh perspective as talking about the need for housing as uh, not just an issue of getting people housed, but also a social justice, environmental issue, uh, access to opportunity issue.
3: So to jump off of that, like, I guess housing is an issue that impacts everyone. However, your positionality will affect how you view housing and your access to housing. So say your skin color, your financial background, um, whether you're first gen or not. And so a lot of people I know would say that, like, you know, if I wasn't an RA, I wouldn't be able to be here, even though there are some excellent students
0: okay yes this is so good because this is what the center is all about is like you know looking at things from like an equity based lens um and how can we examine an issue from like an intersectional intersectional perspective so that it's not just like isolated like how can we get people in homes but it's like how can we do this in a way that is sustainable and and like is well rounded i guess and looking at like how uh not only how to fix the issue but like what caused it and how it's something that's like more than just one factor um Okay, my next question is for Ray, um, because you mentioned, like, about how housing is related to whether or not students of color are able to get into institutions and actually attend. Um, I, I've noticed how you, like, post on your Instagram and you center um, Latinos a lot in your housing organizing. Uh, I'm just wondering, like, I guess some people may not understand what housing issues have to do with, like, Latino student retention, um, maybe, like, POC student retention. Uh, how do those two things, you, you talked about it a little bit, but how do those two issues, like, relate in your mind?
2: The affordability. And that's right. really what it comes down to. And, you know, the UC or institutions of higher education pride themselves in diversity and wanting to enroll a larger number of these students. And yet they don't want to back it up with actually providing the housing, the basic needs that we need in order to actually sustain ourselves and enroll in these schools. And so I think for students, I, I, I highlight the intersectionality so that they could see, you know, this isn't just a a one-cut issue. It it impacts us in different ways. And so, you know, a lot of the time how it impacts Latino students is, you know, most of the time we're going into these spaces of higher education as first generation. And, you know, I've had many friends this past school year that didn't return to UCSC Mm. because they didn't find housing. And so that, you know, by itself goes against what the UC claims to be doing and looking to provide students housing, looking to provide them opportunity when the reality is most of them aren't coming back. The retention isn't there, and that's because they're not following up with what they're claiming to want to do. And so, for me as a Chicano, as Latino, it, it hurts to see that you know these schools like to pride themselves in you know diversity, and yet don't actually put in the work to retain and keep those students in, in these spaces of higher education. So it just goes against everything that they claim to stand for. And so that's kind of what we, what we try to do.
1: And so we've seen that this issue is not just, like we are saying, connected to just having a roof over your head, but it's connected to be able to get an education, it's connected to be able to have access to opportunity. And chronically, we've seen that a lot of the biggest barriers come from that, not even coming from the university themselves, but from the local governments mm. that are staunchly opposed to any sort of expansion of university campuses, they don't view us as constituents because we're just going to be gone in four years. So why do we have to listen to them? Even though that neglects so many problems with the fact that, A, just because I'm not going to be here in four years doesn't mean there's not going to be another person here in four years who's going right. to fill with my black shoes, who faces the exact same problems, and we need to do stuff for them we need to make sure that we aren't facing less access to opportunity than the generations that came before us yet the local government systematically denies us the ability to have that kind of housing which means they're systematically denying us the ability to live here and we deserve to be recognized as a constituency that has needs needs for housing but systematically across the state and especially at the local governmental level there has always been a very anti-student animosity
0: it's so interesting to like be introduced to the politics of a space that i'm like not familiar with at all um and it's because it's so nuanced and i'm like i'm thinking of what this would look like like here in utah okay i first heard about all of you guys through like the demonstration that y'all put on i think it was in may uh, where like students posted up like demands on the glass office wall of the UCSC Chancellor
2: Cynthia Larive is our chancellor and then President Drake who is the president of the entire UC system they were there at the University of Santa University of California Santa Cruz to commemorate the renaming of a college that got named after civil rights icon John Lewis Okay. and uh, we used that as an opportunity to relay a list of demands that you know we want to focus on which was mm-hmm. housing. You know, this isn't, wasn't just a student housing coalition thing. This is, was a, a full effort from all organizations acro- across campus. And, and that's really what we've been able to successfully do mm. is reach people where they're at and, you know, check in with these different communities to make sure that we're, no, we're not co-opting or that we're not, you know, you know, stepping on other issues or other people's feet and, you know, doing something that is collective, a collective struggle to fight against an institution that isn't working for us. And so, yeah, that, that action was super awesome. Um, and it touched on a, like a multitude of things that impact students, not just housing, mm. but, you know, affordability all around. And so that I'm, I'm happy that you found out about that because that was yeah. something that, you know, we all took a, a big role in. And as Student Housing Coalition, that's something that we, we always look back at and kind of use as something to, you know, that, that's what we stand for.
1: There were two actions. So, there was the action that Ray is mentioning, which mm. was um, the action with President Day- Drake, which was uh, regarding a lot of different issues and included partly housing. Okay, yes. But then there was another action as well that was a full-on housing protests that mm-hmm. happened. Oh, um, cool. Okay. It was in conjunction because a lot of the issues overlap, but was a different event. And that was where we uh, did the Martin Luther plaster up our demands on the glass doors of our administration building. Mm-hmm. Um, And that protest was um, as a result of our housing being announced because at UC Santa Cruz, we, you know, a lot of people apply for on-campus housing and basically nobody got it, right? Mm. Everybody was put on a wait list and a lot of people were up in arms because here they were thinking they were going to get campus housing next year. But then they were just denied it. And so yeah. a lot of people were really pissed off. And so within that, within about 36 hours, we put on a protest oh, um, regarding that and protesting the university and the city's roles in contributing to our housing crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we had a huge demonstration, of about 250 people that marched from our central area on campus to the administrative halls where we then had speeches and we did uh, plastered demands onto the glass doors of the entrance to the building. And so out of that, actually, we are creating a working group uh, with the administration that was gonna be comprised of seven students representing unique constituencies on campus, plus five administration to try and iron out the concrete policies that we can do to improve, especially the university housing situation
2: i just want to highlight the student power like the fact that there was that many students participating just you know was super empowering and, and dope to see that like, there's that many people that care because you yeah. know a lot of people they don't <laughs> like truthfully and you know i i, I want to say like the the faces of like the chancellor and president drake or like everyone else like administrators they were like taking it back too they're like oh like snap like, we actually have to, you know, respond to these students hmm. and the needs, like, of what we are fighting for. And so I think, you know, it was really dope to be there and, you know, to see how agitated students were and, and I just wanting to keep that momentum. And hopefully we get the results you want to see from the working group that Zenin is talking about. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the university, you know, all universities are easily cap- capable of just talking. And you know, giving us that space to meet with them, but not actually committing to what we're asking them to do, which is to build. And yeah. um, so, hopefully, you know, that, that's where we got to keep this going. And hopefully, you know, you can be able to re- uh, replicate this in Utah, where mm. you know, students can get involved and you know, demand of their university to do to do more. Yeah. And so, like, I hope that, that this is kind of like you y'all can can take and take pieces of, of what we're talking about to like put it and apply it to where you're
3: at it's like so overwhelming to see so many students gathered in one place like that for a certain cause mm. and it's like you could really feel how much students cared and how much anger they had directed towards like the fact that we have inaccessible inaffordable, non-existent housing and so i think it really also attests to like how much hope there is just in these little dark corners where you wouldn't think it's there and so and student power yeah <laughs> and student power
0: yes cool <laughs> Okay, cool. My next question is, is related to what you just said, Zenon, because you were talking about how um, like it's, it's related to like local governance. You guys seem to be really strategic about the way that you organize. Um, what, how did you like come up with a strategy and, and what does like involvement in local policy, like, what role does it play in how you organize?
1: So I can tell you that for our organization, um, where we've been really effective is turning out people at local government meetings. Random things that nobody shows up to on a Tuesday night. We can send in. So for our, I'll give you an example. So for our first advocacy item, there was this project called One Thirty Center Street, which was two hundred and thirty-three kind of student-oriented units that were like little mm. tiny studio, studio bedrooms, yeah. and um, I think thirty-two of them were deed-restricted affordable point being that's the kind of housing you'd see students living in Mm. right and a resident of the community had appealed the project based upon visual impacts and traffic impacts and we were like up in arms we came out and we turned out in force for this one random project and we we ended up getting um i want to say it was 15 public comments at the actual meeting itself and about 125 uh letters Sent in to every single council member. And it ended up being the largest showing of force in favor of a housing project, pretty much in like the history of Santa Cruz, right? It was the first time that there had actually been more support for a project than there had been opposition. Oh, and they were, the council members were taken aback. Like, they were like, what is this? Who are these people? These damn, what the?
4: That's like? cool. they were like,
1: Totally. And it was the first time ever that a project was unanimously approved at city council. So what we really had uh, power in was being able to effectively mobilize a lot of public pressure on things mm. that otherwise wouldn't have had public pressure. And that kind of scared people and got them in their shoes. And mm-hmm. was like, oh, we're these students, because especially as a constituency, you know, students don't get involved that much. At the local level, mm. they should. Everybody should register to vote in their college town, um, right. but you know well, we're just so busy.
0: <laughs> it's like uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Well, and then, and then it's obviously and it's the access to barrier mm. of opportunity because then oh, coming back to housing, kids that are communicating an hour away from mm. campus and they don't get a vote in any of the local politics that frankly affect them more because they can't afford to live in the city because they have to live somewhere else. So it's another systematic thing where people can't actually access the very institutions that are supposed to be providing for them because of where they live.
0: Okay, yes, that's and so cool. I remember seeing this on your Instagram. What was it like? Were you Michelle Ray, were you guys there? Did you guys get to participate? Like what was it like like to be in the room with all these students that like kind of popped up out of nowhere?
2: Well, it was it was something. I mean to have that many students show up to a city council meeting, mm. you know, to actually provide a public comment was very empowering and it just like I said went to show like what we can do as students when we actually use our voice in these spaces like city council m- mm. meetings. And so to hear the feedback that we got from the council and to see the unanimous vote of approval for a project that has never, you know, happened in Santa Cruz history, it was just a big win for us as students and it kind of kept the momentum going and building that political power mm. and getting more students involved.
0: How do you find such effective ways to mobilize students that have like such limited bandwidth?
1: I can jump here and tell you one-click actions. I mean, seriously, the, what, the way... I mean, the people are invested in this because they care about it, but obviously, especially as students, we don't have the time for most of this, right? right? We don't have the capacity for most of this, and that's why we've been systematically you know, barred from many of these local government spaces. Mm. And so with you know uh the advent of like instagram activism right you know you sl- mm. one click activism right it's effective especially at the local level because they aren't expecting it they aren't expecting people to know how to like click a button and send an email to eight people at the same time like that's just a foreign concept mm. and so what we've been really uh, been able to do is use online platforms to really quickly spread our message spread our actions And then get people to one-click action, send in letters to the respective people that need to hear what they need to hear. I I think it really gets the importance of making a distinction between passive activists and active activists. Okay, yes. Right. You have your passive activists who are people that care because they have a stake in it, Mm. but don't have the time to contribute through showing up to meetings or... You know, creating flyers and things like that, which is totally acceptable. We're all at different points, and people have stuff they need to do. They need to get their degrees, right? But at the same point, you also have active activists, which are the people that'll show up to meetings, that'll help write the language for these kind of action items, that'll help disseminate the information, all that kind of stuff. And so we've found a really good balance of a really good core group of active people um, that are able to help drive these actions, but then a really broad base of passive activists that are able to when it's available for them, one click action, send it in, make it happen just in, within less than a minute.
2: I think it's also the way that you communicate and relay the issues to students. And I think okay. the way that we have used social media to our advantage, the mm. way that we kind of post on our Instagrams, like calling out bullshit on city council. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. knowing knowing how to communicate to our fellow students that mm. like this is an issue that is not just going to impact you, but also future students that want to come to this institution. Mm and so the way that you know we have made it into bite-sized material mm. where you can just read it in a one caption one sentence and understand what the issue is mm-hmm. that's another re- way like that we've a- been able to mobilize students where it's like oh i understand this it's not like super complex because you know when we go through these you know 200 uh, page project reports to see yes. like what what how it's going to look like and you know, what it even means you know, we had to make that into bite-sized material for students to actually understand and to like want to actually participate and get involved. Oh, yeah. So I think it's the way we, we communicate.
0: It's about accessibility. Because if you don't understand what's going on, like how are you going to participate? Why are you even going to care? Just an example
3: of how we've been able to like kind of take our part in educating our general members is kind of like we do things at meetings that are like oh primer on local politics um understand these measures and so they can actually have what they need to be able to understand what's going on at the city level and help them like enable them to be more involved
0: man it was so dope talking to those guys and really inspiring too and sometimes i think like as students we forget that our tuition runs the school and that that sort of setup gives us some power you know like we're getting so caught up in how much we need the university that we'll forget how much the university needs us too now i spoke a bit earlier about how i wasn't really sure how the issue of housing insecurity applied to me so i'm not an unsheltered student and as far as i knew neither were any of my peers but while doing the research for this episode i found out that more than 56,000 college students indicated that they were homeless on the free application for federal student aid or, or fafsa in 2013 and that number has been steadily increasing since then. Reading this, I knew those stories existed. Not just at some university in overpriced California, but around me. So we started doing a bit more localized research, and that led us to BYU Homeless Week. Now, we talked about BYU on the pod before, but for new listeners, Brigham Young University, or BYU, is a private religious university just south of UVU located in Provo, Utah. Often marketed as an accredited school that offers religious affiliates discounted tuition, outsiders flock to BYU so that approximately 70% of their students are out-of-state or international students. Now, in order to attend BYU students are required to live in BYU-approved housing. This means that whether you live on or off campus, you have to live in an apartment that BYU has contracts with. Problem is, contracts for BYU-approved housing in Provo frequently have a gap of one to two weeks between contracts, meaning students have to be out of a place sometimes weeks before they can be in another. That span of one to two weeks has been dubbed by students BYU Homeless Week. Now, if you're a Provo native and your parents live 30 minutes away, it can be a bit of a bummer to have to go home for a bit and stay there for two weeks tops. But if you're part of the 70% that are international students or students that come from out of state, chances are you got nowhere to go. Now during this normalized period of forced houselessness, it's not uncommon for students to sleep in their cars, brush teeth in campus bathrooms, and camp out on parking lots. And in a state with wild temperature extremes and nights that can get cold enough to freeze unsheltered folks to death in the winter, this isn't just an inconvenience, it can even be a matter of life or death. Now the Daily Universe, a BYU-affiliated publication, wrote a series of articles about the housing situation at BYU and they found that quote, during the 2014-2015 to academic year, the BYU Student Advisory Council surveyed students about the homeless period. Of the respondents, 48% said they had been negatively affected by the homeless period, and only 16% didn't even know what the homeless period was. Close quote. And even here at UVU, housing can be wildly inaccessible. A commuter school with no dorms and a higher than average number of non-traditional students with families, UVU is surrounded by pricey student housing units charging anywhere from twelve to $1,500 a month for a cramped studio. Now hearing about all these circumstances in my area, I knew that meant that probably someone I knew had direct experience with these systems. So we put a call out to some spots online, to people we knew, and we asked students in Utah if they had any stories to share. Now we only received a few submissions, and part of that I bet is due to the stigma surrounding being unsheltered. But the ones we did receive resonated with me a lot.
5: When the pandemic hit, uh, my husband and I were forced to move because our jobs got shut down. And essentially, within two and a half years, my husband and I moved eight different times. So we've never really had a stable home our entire marriage. And one of the times that we moved, I had just become a flight attendant. Before this happened, we moved into a really expensive apartment in Draper. It was like $1,400 a month for a studio. And so because our rent was so expensive that year, when I was based as a flight attendant in Minneapolis for, I think it was for two months, and then Denver for another two months, um, I could not afford to rent out another place in those cities. Um, I was working full time as a flight attendant and on my off days, I would have to fly back to Minneapolis or Denver just to make sure I could get to my flights on time. If I was on call for like six days um, and they didn't call me for like four of those days, I had nowhere to stay. So I was sleeping at the airports. Um, I couldn't shower. Um, I mean, I could brush my hair and brush my teeth um but I would just like take terrible baths in the airport bathrooms with like paper towels and stuff um before a flight if I did get called in to work um and that was extremely terrible for my mental health um it was incredibly lonely um I had never experienced anything like that before. And I told myself that I could do it because I needed to save money. Um, we just could not afford another place to rent when we were paying 1400 for a studio in Utah. I had to drop out of BYU because I needed a full-time job to pay for um, our expensive apartment. And when I became a flight attendant, I thought that would be my career. Um, But then I wasn't based in Salt Lake City and I had to spend like half a year living um, at the airports. It still impacts us today because we have found a place that's extremely cheap and we're going to stay there. It's month to month, but it doesn't meet code. Like our shower is in a hallway with carpet. It doesn't have a, a ceiling. It's kind of disgusting. Our kitchen has a giant hole in the ceiling as well. Um, the airflow is terrible when we cook there's like no airflow or like vents in the ovens and my husband's literally fixing it up for free um, just so it's a little more stable because I mean we've been married three years now and this is probably the first place that we've stayed like the longest without drama.
0: The Hope Center for College Community and Justices hashtag real college survey published in March 2021 identified that students of color, parenting students, and students who identified as LGBTQ were more likely to face housing insecurity than their peers. And in 2012, the UPR described Utah as one of the worst places to be LGBT and homeless. According to True Colors United, LGBTQ plus youth are 120% more likely to experience homelessness than their peers. To put that into perspective, while only 7% of all youth in the USA are LGBTQ 40% of youth experiencing homelessness are LGBTQ plus. To put that into perspective, while only 7% of all youth in the USA are LGBTQ+, 40% of unsheltered youth are queer. One of our student submissions talks a bit about this experience and describe what it's been like looking for safe and affordable housing in Utah County while being queer.
6: So I moved out of my parents' house pretty quickly after turning 18. I ended up finding like the perfect like little two, two bedroom, one bath. It was 900 a month plus utilities and I split that with one other person. And I spent two years, like, furnishing it, finding stuff off Facebook Marketplace, and just, like, thrifting things. And I really made it kind of my cozy little home because I planned on being there my entire time through college and probably a little bit afterwards. One random afternoon, I got an email that my apartment was being reclaimed. Um, There was a small clause in my lease that stated uh, if at any time the owner of the property wanted to sell it, that the um, tenants had... 30 days to vacate. Suddenly, midterms were coming up, and then I had 30 days to pack my entire apartment that I lived in for two years <laughs> and try and find somewhere to live. And I ended up packing like my necessities into my car. So I <laughs> got a mini cooler to keep in there, and I had like a spare change of clothes and toothbrush. and. Like, just the little things I might need just in case I couldn't find somewhere. So what I ended up doing was I stayed with a friend at their parents' house, which was, like, a city away from Orem. And that was supposed to be a short-term arrangement. But it's been over a year now, and I still unofficially live there. And I... (laughs) I'm also a queer ex-Mormon and being in a city that's in such close proximity to BYU and Utah County being 72% LDS, it's really difficult not to find, to, to find leases that aren't arbitrarily putting LDS standards and doctrine in there when they don't need to be. Um, The amount of times I got so close to signing a lease for them to have a morality clause. I also, like when I was apartment hunting, I used to um, ask when I was inquiring about apartment availability if they were LGBTQ plus friendly. And I straight up had landlords tell me that I wasn't going to be a good fit after asking that question (laughs) and then not ever respond to anything else I said. And it is just so discouraging and there's nothing you can really do about it and so that feeling of helplessness and like (laughs) the feeling like you have to compromise some part of your like wants needs or values in order to just live somewhere (laughs) or meet some kind of eligibility requirements is absolutely absurd (laughs) And as a student, that's how are you supposed to focus on schoolwork when you don't really know where you're going to sleep?
0: Similarly, black and Hispanic households are almost twice as likely as white households to be spending a disproportionate amount of their monthly income on rent-related expenses. Now, given that those families are more likely to be disproportionately impacted by discriminatory housing practices and policies such as redlining, they are also more likely to experience housing instability. The term redlining has been used to refer to all types of historic race-based discrimination in real estate, from real estate agents, quote, directing black home buyers and renters to certain neighborhoods or buildings and away from others, unquote, to racial watchdog groups in suburbs and development, barring black residents from buying homes in those areas. Now, these and other practices contributed to racial segregation. However, redlining refers to how black would-be homeowners who should have been considered credit-worthy applicants were denied home loans that were backed by government insurance programs. While this practice was prohibited after the Fair Housing Act of 1968 passed, the damage was done, and the ramifications are still being felt today. Now, all of these factors are emphasized by a series of local Utah laws that disproportionately protect wealthy landlords while exploiting poor students and other residents. Now, in 2020, Eric Peterson, an experienced investigative journalist and a team of reporters from the Utah Investigative Journalism Project, found that Utah's eviction laws are stacked overwhelmingly in favor of landlords with penalties and fees and interest rates charged to renters that can only be described as predatory and abusive, close quote. Just a few examples of these predatory practices include short eviction notice requirements, 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 high interest rates, hidden fees, and a lack of requirements to translate critical rental documents into a language tenants can understand. Now, another student submitted a recording describing how housing instability is a particular concern for immigrants, especially immigrants who have even a bit of trouble understanding English.
4: It was my partner. His lease had ended. He had another place lined up he was supposed to go to, and there was going to be like a day between the day that he moved out from his old place and the day that he moved in because the person who was selling their contract couldn't, like, let him in just yet. They needed to get some things figured out. But he gets a message from the person, the lady that was selling her contract, and she said that she wasn't going to be able to sell it anymore. So for the first semester, I think, like, a month into, into like, the fall semester, my partner was homeless. We went to different leasing houses, and the thing is, like, we're both immigrants. So some questions that they would ask... Especially my partner being, like, as of, like, a few days ago, he hit his, like, year mark in the U.S. So he didn't, like, like in the fall, he didn't have certain information that they were acquiring. For example, he had enough saved up in his account, but because his account, his bank account, is, like, in Puerto Rico, they didn't want to accept that. They said that, no, he needed to have U.S. dollars, like, he needed to have, like, a U.S. bank. And that's kind of what we were told in a lot of leasing places that we went to, that he needed to have a U.S. bank and they didn't really care about the savings that he had like they wanted to make sure that he had like a solid job which also led to another problem because he was still learning like English at the time so lending a job was very complicated but he had already worked a lot before coming to the U.S. so he had enough for like a year's worth of like rent but like a lot of like contracts wouldn't like a lot of like leasing areas wouldn't give him wouldn't sign with him for like, uh, like an apartment or anything because they didn't care about the savings. Like they wanted monthly income. And I think that's like the thing here in the States. I I don't know. But it was a little complicated, especially because finding a place at the last minute that's affordable is very hard. A lot of places that we went to, they had no availability. Like their next availability was gonna be like in January. And that was like back in August. So that's like months of like waiting for a place. And he already didn't have a place. He was homeless at that point. At this time, like, my apartment was still good, but it was very, like, religious. Only, like, females could be in the apartment or in certain areas of the apartment. My apartment wasn't available for my partner to, like, for him to, like, be able to, st- you know, stay. For half a month, he was... And, and I stayed with him because I know that this was, like, a very scary experience for him, and so I didn't want him to experience it on his own. So for half a month, I think it was almost a month, actually um we hopped around from airbnb to airbnb and from hotel to hotel sometimes like some of those hotels would be right next to the university that i go to like he didn't have a place to go Like we both go here to the university and it was just kind of like i don't know it just felt like i don't know like an unreal thing for us it was like okay like we're checking out of a hotel, and we have to check into another one before we can go to class. Like, that was last semester. But anyways, after, like, half a month to a month, I can't remember. It was, like, several weeks that we were, like, homeless. Well, I I say we because it was, like, yeah, he was homeless, but, like, I stayed with him because I didn't want to, like, leave him in this time because it's just really scary, like, coming to a country that not having a home. So, coming straight to be homeless. Um, But anyways, then after after that era of like not having like a place to stay one of the apartment complexes around the campus was they had an availability because that's the one thing like that's one thing like almost every place that we went to had no availability and if they had an availability they wanted him to have like a certain monthly income but every time like somebody would find out that his bank was in puerto rico they would like i don't know switch up on that
0: Now, housing instability happens because we treat housing as a commodity instead of a right. Add all these factors together and housing insecurity isn't some kind of one-off accident. It's actually a direct result of housing systems and policies that benefit a small class of people and profit off the backs of the rest of us.
7: My difficulty with housing security really began um, in my second year in college. So I was a UVU student and um, I was going to school full-time. So I was unhoused. I lived in uh, the back of a pickup truck. Uh, this period lasted about two years. I was dealing with housing insecurity. Um, yeah, I was going to school and working multiple jobs to try and cover my expenses. Honestly, for the majority of this time, I lived off the of food that I foraged from the trash cans, um, which was really difficult and um, kind of sketchy at times. But uh, you know, it got me through. This was a, It was a really difficult time for me. Primarily, I was struggling with mental illness. And um, on top of that, I, I was really going through some financial difficulty. And thirdly, I, I, did, I didn't have a strong community. So I didn't have family members that were nearby or close friends that had safe places that I could stay or rely on. Um, and that's really what led me to be unhoused in this state for um, for so long. Um, and like I said, it was hard. I felt taken advantage of in many ways. Like, you know, I was working multiple jobs, easily working 40 hours a week. And even through all of this, I, I wasn't making enough money to meet my own needs. Um, and you know, that made me feel really angry. And, you know, that anger grew as I met and befriended other unhoused folks. Not having their needs met, you know, it breeds desperation. I was scared to death that I would get back to my car after work or class and find it broken into and all of my things gone, or that I would be injured, you know, I I had no health insurance. I still don't have health insurance. To feel that I couldn't even meet my own needs or provide support for the
0: people that I cared about was really, really difficult, and I felt shame. If you or anyone you know is in a similar situation, there are tons of organizations all over California, here in Utah, and even here on campus created to offer relief and resources. Utah Rent Relief offers a form Utah's residents can fill out to receive COVID-related rent relief if they're eligible. Important though, that program will stop accepting applications February 5th, 2023, so if you're a lucky early listener, click on the link in our show notes to see if you qualify. Now if you're listening from Utah County, the Genesis Project in Provo hosts night-long movie nights from 8pm to 8am for unhoused folks to get out of the Cold when night temperatures drop below 20 degrees. Another local resource is Food Not Bombs. They have locations in Salt Lake City and Provo where you can pick up recently expired free food from local grocery stores at stationary fridges. We also got the Food and Care Coalition, who offer a free lunch program and community action services and a bunch of other community based resources. And again, we got all these orgs linked in the show notes. For students in particular, we got another organization here on campus called The Hand Up, which is a student led club here on campus that focuses on spreading awareness about the issue of housing and basic needs and security to students on campus through service advocacy and awareness campaigns and here at the center for social impact which is the center that houses this podcast we got the care hub which offers students access to a food pantry food vouchers one-on-one wellness consultations and emergency counseling and a bunch of other housing and food and security related resources there's a lot of normalization and shame surrounding housing insecurity and college students are no exception to those feelings and that shame has a lot of lasting impacts
5: it's, it's really interesting how much a home and stability affects every aspect of your health, but it really does. So it was <laughs> a hard situation, and I hope to never go through that again.
4: We were, like, desperate. We needed, like, a place because we were, like, already homeless, you know? It was because of, the friend, like, the housing insecurity that led us to then having um, food insecurity. And because we can't have, like, you can't really have, like, both, you know? it's like you pay one or and then you have half like a little bit for the other
6: when you don't have that foundation of a home and an address trying to find a place to live that you have security safety as a queer person it's extremely difficult
7: there's a really strong stigma around being unhoused and you know even more than that even more than what other people see there's a a deep sense of like failure personal failure i think that These experiences have left me with a a very acute sense of conscientiousness and really just habitual gratitude. Um, That I'm alive, that I'm healthy, that I'm able to meet my needs now, um, and that I can find happiness in community and in myself. Housing insecurity is really difficult and we should feel patience and love and support toward those folks who are
0: struggling with it, I think that they would really benefit from that. The takeaway for me here is that we have power as students, and we don't need to just accept conditions silently. The crew with the USC Student Housing Coalition agrees. What advice do y'all have for student orgs that are looking to achieve the same track record of like really impressive events and participation and engagement from students that y'all got? OK, I got two,
2: I got two, I got two. Um, educate, agitate and organize good words and then the other one is people over everything so you know that's that's been a focus for you know the majority of our work it's been you know profit the way that universities want to exploit us shouldn't be the priority it should Hmm. be us having the opportunity to go to school and pursue higher education and get a degree so that that would be my advice to those who want to do similar work would be to find a a group of like-minded individuals and you know turn sit up get people mad agitate (laughs) so you know that's that that would be my 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 two cents on that one
3: um yeah i mean so true (laughs) i mean like understanding your unique position as someone like a student um and how you can all find a common vein in that is something that can bring a lot of people together and you can find yourself connecting with people on things that you never really thought about before and I also think that um, in order to do this obviously you need a lot of student support and so not trying to alienate people who like don't know the lingo don't know what's going on trying to instead bring them in and allow them to feel heard in the space like everyone can voice their own opinion um, and it's actually very appreciated and so inviting people um, and making it not seem like this exclusive thing that only like people in the know can participate in
1: Yeah. And to to close it off, I think in the end, it comes down in a lot of ways to personal relationships, right? I mean, as much as we do organizing around this work, because we're all passionate about it, we're also like friends, right? You know, we also just hang out and like do stuff (laughs) and just do normal college things, right? Which is fun, which is exactly what you need. And so when it comes to kind of not only just keeping sane for the non-existent work-life balance, but (laughs) when it comes to a lot of these things, right? It's it's about those personal connections you have with people over pretty much anything, because it's when you have that trust in someone as an individual, as someone you've worked with, as someone you've been with, as someone you know can align with your values, your core values, the rest of it comes easy. The rest of it is about just making sure we can continue to be on that same page and continue with the persistence of this organizing, because... You know, the only, the other side doesn't rest and neither should we, right? Like it's, it's the, our ability to organize is contingent upon our ability to be persistent. And when we're persistent, we win because we can just tire them out. <laughs> we can run circles around them. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> and so that's pretty much what I'd say is that really having those personal relationships, making sure it's beyond just the actual work, but it's actually having friends. It's having those mm. connections. And then also just having persistence and having a constant presence of, hey, we're here and we're not going away.
0: This is all I got this episode, y'all. Now, it really takes a whole team to produce these episodes, so thanks a lot to our researchers, Danny, Kenna, Shirley, and Airy, especially Danny, who helps me out with scripting stuff every time. And thanks to our sound editors, Brayden and Jaden, and our excellent sound engineer, Sophie. Thanks to our interviewees, Zenin, Ray, and Michelle. And thanks to each one of the students who offered out their stories for us to share here on the podcast. And thanks to the dope people at the Care Hub for all the work that they do, and especially to Kinsey with the Care Hub and Madeline with the Hand Up for helping me to distribute the anonymous submission form. Thanks to the fellows, especially Kate, for helping me out with our resources list, and to my advisors for the constant help and support. And you know, thanks a bunch to y'all for listening. If we said anything y'all want to know more about, we got citations and resources linked in the show notes. Now the Center for Social Impact is located in the Student Wellness Building in SC105, right across from the ballroom. We got events every Thursday, so follow us on Instagram at UVU Social Impact to find out what we got going on. We release episodes here monthly, so drop by next month and give us a listen again. I'm Hannah, and y'all were listening to Critical Mass Podcast.